book of Proverbs in the 28th chapter. Glad you're in the Lord's house tonight. I had looked about, had not seen any visitors with us, and I did accordingly as far as things, but I'm glad you're here. Proverbs chapter 28, and verse 5. not what I want, but that's okay. You can look up this way a moment, if you will, and I'll show you, show you where we're going with this. The, uh, um, we're going to have several different verses in there. I wrote something down. I sent, put a note to myself and then didn't move it to what I did. Uh, tonight, we're speaking on the subject of the truth and folly of forgiveness. The truth and folly of forgiveness, if you want to be prepared for it, the first place will be a Psalm 86, and I apologize for taking to the proverb with that. Speak to you about the truth and folly of forgiveness. Once you find Psalm 86, you want to look up towards me and then we will will continue on with it. Psalm 86, but I chose the title tonight, um, as I mentioned a little bit this morning, the truth and folly is because um, it's a powerful doctrine, forgiveness is very essential to the Christian walk, and uh, there's a lot of teaching on forgiveness. Rightfully, there should be. And there is right teaching, thank God for that, and then there is erroneous teaching in this matter of forgiveness and what that entails and what that looks like and how that operates in people's, people's lives. Um, when it comes to Bible truth, uh, Foolish or improper, let me use that word instead, improper teaching of doctrine has a profound effect on people's living. I believe that anyone who teaches the Word of God, by the way, it was good to have you playing again tonight, Doc, and, uh, the, uh, or preaches the Word of God, needs to be very sober and vigilant about trying to do it rightly. And we have a decently proper respect for how manifold and how deep the Word of God is and how doctrine is important, then uh, we are very careful not to be slack in the way we handle it. I think it would be an exceedingly proud and presumptuous mind that would assume that they always had everything right. I believe the Bible's right. And I really desire and set out, I believe what I believe. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't be preaching it. It's that simple. Um, I, I don't preach to conform to a certain group or meet that or approval of a certain group or, or stay within favor of a certain group. But uh, to what I believe that the Bible, what the Bible actually teaches. Give you a real example of this, and I'll, I'll be very aware as I'm saying this. Right? The purpose of it is not to bring any any type of hurt to mind. But when we had the, I believe it was a, I say this word reverently, I believe it was a powerful service here in this, this place. When our dear little sister Olivia went home to be with the Lord, who we haven't got to meet yet. And we're going to get to meet her. And that's awesome. I was just listening to a message I thought would help us take heart in that. I was listening to a message and, uh, about knowing our loved ones in heaven. 
And the preacher wisely brought out the fact there's some we didn't get to know here that we're going to get to know there. And I love that. I'm glad. That's a great place. But in that service, this auditorium was quite full, as most of you would remember. And it was a mix of folks who believe very differently about some basic and very fundamental doctrines of things in the Bible. There was a large population of folks in our, in our auditorium at that time who have been taught and they believe and they teach their group to teach, of course, that salvation can be lost. And uh, all sorts of various things that go with that. There's all sorts of groups that teach you can lose your salvation. Some are more stringent with it than others. And uh, yet, God moved in that service after the service as people dined together and such. I watched people who would not necessarily agree on all the different tenets of things, uh, having a fellowship and being able to talk. But there was one profound thing that happened with that. Some of you may remember, I'm, I remember it because I could almost feel it physically up here. I had gotten up and said a statement you all are familiar with being taught, but it is almost unknown or unheard of in, in some areas. And I said, uh, you, you have been taught, many of you have been taught, some of you in here have been taught this. I said, you've been taught that you, you don't ask why. That you're not allowed to ask why. And I made the statement, I said, that's an erroneous teaching. But it got as quiet as it is right now, even more so then. And if I may be bold enough to say, those who were from different churches uh, than ours, and uh, particularly our type of church that we would be familiar with, they paused and I could tell it was like, what's this guy getting ready to say? And uh, I don't blame them. They hadn't heard that before. They don't know me. And uh, I said, uh, so my first Bible evidence for you that is Christ on the cross when he said, my, my God, my God. And I stopped and in unison, everyone who was here said, Why? there was a profound effect within that room at that moment. And more so afterwards, a lot of different things were said. Folks who come up at the dinner and talked about this were a couple points that were just like, never, never thought of the scripture and what it says there. And then I had related to me that there's a precious lady who for over 50 years had mourned the loss of twins. And I believe, if I'm right on my timing on this, it may have been on the ride to this, the graveside or that sort of thing, began to weep or sometime during all this, began to weep and break down and was asked about why. She said, all these years, I thought I couldn't ask why. And basically, in so many words, said, I felt guilty if I wondered why. I, I felt maybe it was unspiritual. If I ask why, that was not allowed. You didn't ever ask why. That's erroneous teaching and 50 years of a burden that didn't need to be there. There's enough of a burden with the events that happened. There's enough of a burden with the uh, intrusion into, into the heart and life that came about because of the loss she had felt. But then to compound that on top with teaching that was not careful with the Scripture, it, it ought to make any of us who teach and preach the Bible uh, be very sober and careful about attending to Bible doctrine the right way. Because wrong teaching leads people to sometimes hopelessness. Sometimes 
anger towards God because we as God's failing representatives have not represented Him properly in the context of who He is. And so tonight, uh, with that in mind and also understanding a little bit of the scope of what I want to speak to you about, um, I enter into this teaching on to you tonight about the truth and folly of forgiveness. I am not endeavoring to put out a comprehensive treatise here about forgiveness, dealing with all the different aspects and all the many questions that could probably be asked after I'm done speaking here. Instead, I am trying to show you some basic biblical parameters that will put your heart and mind into the right direction of study and the right direction of application in your life. Because I understand from the Word of God that our spiritual well-being and the well-being of our relationships with other people is very much attached to understanding and exercising biblical forgiveness. Without it, what is the essence of Christianity will be of no effect in our lives. And so tonight I want to talk to you about the truth and folly of forgiveness. Let me say to you, and then we'll start in Psalm 86 and, and go from there. There are two parts to forgiveness. And now these terms I'm going to use for, for this are just meant to give us identification. Uh, they're not biblical terms, and so they may have the frailty that's attached to them not being an exact biblical phrase. But they give us a, a means of identifying something. And I have the two parts of forgiveness that I want you to comprehend tonight. There you have the reserve of forgiveness. What does that mean? That is the source from which forgiveness comes. That means the, what allows you to be able to forgive when it's proper to extend forgiveness. And even that phrase may confuse some of you a little bit at first here. But I'm going to talk to you about the reserve of forgiveness. Then I'm going to speak to you about the function of forgiveness. What does it look like? How do we be a forgiving people? There's probably some teaching on forgiveness which you've encountered which graded on the sensibilities of your mind when you heard it. You looked at it, and not just because maybe you had a situation where it would be hard for you to forgive something, maybe it's a particular area that would be a struggle for you, but there was something about it just did not make a lot of sense. And so tonight, instead of trying to expose or enumerate or name out some of those type of teachings that are there, I want to give you scripturally about this reserve of forgiveness and then the, uh, the uh, function of forgiveness. First of all, I want to talk to you about this reserve of forgiveness and the source from which the capacity to forgive is drawn. Suppose we had had uh, John Workman back here and I suppose we had had a falling out for some reason. Suppose there was something between us. If there is, I certainly don't know anything about it. Um, length of an auditorium right now, but that's about it. Um, but if, if there was something between us as brothers something had arisen, whatever it may be. And suppose I had been the one who was actually, if you were to look at it, I was the one who had caused the trespass, who had caused the problem to be there. And then realizing that, and I had come to John and taken ownership and responsibility for what I had done to cause that rift, and him being able to actually at that time extend to me true forgiveness. In order to do that, there has to be a reserve from which to draw. Let me say to you that we can be like our, we can be like our Lord in this. Look in Psalm 86. 
and verse 5, it says, Thou, O, for thou, Lord, art good. And, what's the next word? Ready to forgive. And what? Plenteous in mercy. Unto all them, look at it, that call upon thee. You have the perfect biblical picture, of course, shown through our Heavenly Father, that He was ready to forgive, full of mercy. So why? That He could forgive those who call upon Him. Do you know there wasn't a time delay, not any time delay at all, between when we came to Christ for forgiveness when we sought the forgiveness of the Lord, whether it had been at the time of salvation, whether it be since then in our walk with God, there is no time delay between when we came with a heart that was actually wanting to get right with Him, and of course He knows that, and when He forgave us. I mean, at that moment, God never had to say, well, let me go, let me go get, get this settled within my own self. You know what? Instead, here's what He did. He said, I have mercy and grace in reserve for you today. What is that? That is the reserve of forgiveness. God wants us to have that. You say, well, preacher, how does that happen? Well, this means that the reserve of forgiveness means that we, uh, we choose not to try to be the avenger of whatever the wrong is. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. It's a mean preacher, okay? That's an interesting idea, concept, but what's that, what's that really mean? Well, to have this reserve ready, we have to make a choice not to be the avenger. The avenger is someone who tries to get vengeance, tries to make someone pay for what they've done. Look in Romans chapter 12 and... The Bible will give it to you clearly with this. And we're going to be looking at one verse and then coming back and looking at the text around it so you want to stay here. Look in verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. Let's keep reading and find out who made that claim on vengeance. I will repay, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And I'll deal with the verses around that in just a moment, but I want you to understand something. The Lord is the only one who truly knows what is owed. I will repay, He said. He's the only one who truly knows what someone is deserving. And, not only that, He's also the only one who knows whether or not they have truly repented. You know, someone can put on a good act of getting right and never be getting right. And someone can not have a lot of outward show of emotion and actually be getting right. And we, we, are not, we are not adept at knowing the difference. We can watch long term a behavior pattern and that teaches us something. But right up front, it's, it's very hard to know. 
But God knows. See, that's why He says vengeance is mine. He's the only one that can repay. He's the only one that can appropriately exact what is needed for that situation which has happened. Look in, look in the passages starting back in verse 18 of that same chapter. And I will show you some of the... Uh, some of what the reserve of forgiveness looks like. Look in verse 18. It says, If it be possible, I love this, if it be possible, as much as lieth in you. Now, I love that because it's not often you get anything in the Bible that has two, not almost disclaimers attached to it at the beginning. Look, look what's said. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. What does that mean? It's the source for peaceable living. This thing of the reserve of forgiveness is what brings about peaceable living. God wants us to be at peace with Him, at peace within ourselves, and He wants us to be able to have that in the midst of a very troubled and troubling world. You know, it wouldn't be as, it wouldn't be as tough if the world was just troubled. The world had its troubles, you know. But the world is troubled and troubling. Not content just to be troubled, it wants to share its troubles. As the old spiritual song says, I soon will be done with the troubles of the world. Amen? And uh, we got news for you. Verse 2, we ain't there yet. And so, it's a source for peaceable living. Then look at verse 19, which we read. It says, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And I put this down with that. This thing of having a reserve of forgiveness chooses a different way than the path of wrath. It does not enter into the folly of saying, I'm going to make them pay, or I'm going to make sure they see what they have done. That path once started on has no end. Because we can never measure And I'm talking now about a reserve of forgiveness. I'm talking about a reserve from which the forgiveness can come. Then look at verse 20 in that same passage. It says, Therefore, if thine enemy, it's attached to that, not avenging ourselves, therefore, if thine enemy, maybe the one that you would think needs vengeance on them, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. You said, now that's the part I'd like to do. Actually, that, that comes about because of us not bringing the vengeance. What I put down with verse 20 is this. What this reserve of forgiveness looks like, it maintains basic human courtesy based on the character of oneself instead of the actions of others. The, uh, there's, there's a funny saying that says, don't ever argue with an ignorant person. They'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. Well, when this thing, uh, this thing of forgiveness, when we when we extend basic human courtesy, they're thirsty. You say, well, they need to pay for what they've done. They may. 
and there is one who will guarantee that if that is the case. Can we get to this point? Can we stop for a minute? And can we, uh, can we honestly answer a question? <clears throat> Are we willing to accept the fact that we don't have all the facts about things? Are we willing to accept the fact that we never see completely clearly what we're looking at? Said, not me, I have great discernment. You also have a measure of delusion. You may have an ability to see some things, and experience may teach you that you do. But if you think you're foolproof on it, then you've just not met the proper fool. Because you're not. Well, I can always tell somebody's lying to me. You've not dealt with very many pathological liars, have you? They'll lie to you, and it never twitches in them because a lie is what they are. Therefore, when they're lying, they're being, can I say this? They're being true to their self. Because that's what they are. And there are those. And by the way, they're increasing, not decreasing in our society. Big time. And so, it's keeping decent human courtesy. Being able to function towards someone in an honorable way not necessarily honoring them. They may not be an honorable person, but honoring the fact that you and I should act in a way which is honorable. Then, in verse 20, you look at that, and then verse 21, be not overcome of evil. In other words, it doesn't get to win. But overcome evil with what? With good. This is the way of victory instead of victimhood. Look in James chapter 5. Run towards Revelation. You'll run across Brother James here before too long. James chapter 5. There's so many things that need said. There's so many things that deal with this topic the preaching a single message on it of necessity has to leave a few things not developed fully. One of which I will interject this much, scripturally, you're not under some kind of obligation to allow yourself to, to receive real abuse at the hands of another. That's not what this is talking about. It's, it's the idea of you having in you this reserve of forgiveness. James chapter 5, and look if you will in verse 9. What's the first word in verse 9? Grudge. You know what that means. Here it's used in a, a verbal form. But do you know what the word grudge is? It's holding something against someone. It is letting it become a part of your fiber. It is holding deeply of this thing. We say, we use that term, holding a grudge, correct? Well, this grudge, and it's used here in a verbal form, it's the action that is precipitated by having the grudge in our heart. In James chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Who? The one who's grudging. Then look at this verse and look, look at the end of it and see how it exactly ties into everything I'm teaching you here in Romans about binge not yourself. Behold, the whom? 
the judge standeth before the door. Why is that in there? Because that exactly matches the doctrine as it's laid out in Romans chapter 5. Grudge not. Why? Because the judge is at the door. And it's not you. And it's not me. It's God. And if you and I step into the realm of judge, we condemn ourselves. I put this statement down as I thought through this and sought to put this into a format that could be followed and understood. If you or I hold a grudge against someone, then you join them in afflicting yourself. If I hold a grudge against somebody, then I am helping them hurt me. And the judge standeth at the door. You know what the concept of standeth at the door is, don't you? He's getting ready to come in. I'd work hard to stay awake. You need this. They, it means he's getting ready to come in. It means he's right there. You know Christ could come back tonight. Or since I've been a little bit, people have been talking about signs of the time. I always thought it was a little off, weird, whatever. Then I, as I've studied the Bible for years, I, I know it is because it's like, you know, everything's being fulfilled and I always want to ask what in particular. Uh, I believe in the imminent coming of Christ. I believe there's nothing that could, that could prevent Him from coming right now if He chooses. So what that means is if He did come right now, my next step would be the judgment seat of Christ as far as things being dealt with. Thank God the, the judgment of my sin and the condemnation of that sin is passed over. Passed over as in Passover because of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, and Him taking my condemnation upon Him. But I will give account for the things done in this body. And I could stand in the stark light of heaven's courtroom knowing that I am justified, knowing I belong to the Lord, but yet giving as a servant a accounting to my master on how and what I've done with this life he has granted me to have in this world. That's a serious business. And so, grudge not one against another. Why? You condemn yourself with you because the judge standeth at the door. That's the reserve of forgiveness. And I'm sure there are many things you could ask. I'm sure there's more we'd go into with it. But in one setting, as it were, I'm not going to try to feed you the whole ox. <laughs> Let me talk to you tonight then about the function of forgiveness. I think you see that there needs to be a reserve. There needs to be somewhere to draw from. If I'm going to be able to forgive someone, then that has to come from somewhere. But what does it look like and under what condition do I put forth this forgiveness to other people? With the reserve of forgiveness, what does actual forgiving, what does it look like? And by the way, this is important to understand and it is the part of this truth that is most often mistaught. More, I have the titles of truth and folly of forgiveness. The folly of forgiveness enters in at this point more than anywhere else in the teaching of forgiveness. I dislike 
ill-stated illustrations. Um, I tried to avoid them. I, I dislike them most if I make one. But I, I try to avoid them. I cringe when I hear them. Such things as this grate on me. Someone gets up and they're preaching about the forgiveness of God and God's capacity to forgive. And there's a lot of great illustrations you could get with that. I mean, Apostle Paul, how, how would that serve? Talk about how vehemently he hated believers. That idea, as I taught in our class, where he was breathing out slaughter against them. That's the idea of being so, someone being so angry, their nostrils are distended, those veins are sticking out, their... That, that look of viciousness, that's exactly how he was towards everybody who believed. And yet God would take him and use him as a preacher. And that's a great illustration. You can take someone from history like John Newton who was actually became the slave of a slave. He was such a debauched human being at one point that he went around like an animal on hands and knees. And yet he would be saved and God would use him to preach the gospel. He's better known for his song, Amazing Grace. But he was also a powerful preacher of the gospel. His, his memory gave, his mind gave towards the end of his life. And they, they asked him what he remembered and they asked him about this or that and he couldn't really remember anything. And he said, one thing I remember, he said, I remember what a sinner I was and what a savior he is. That's what he had left. Your brother Curtis Hudson, that name doesn't mean anything to some of you, but he was a preacher and uh, was used of the Lord. And he came down to the end of his life and he was under such severe pain from cancer. He had types of cancer. I don't know if it was bone cancer or what type of cancer, uh, cancer excuse me, that was just so severely painful that it was just unbearable. And the doctors came and said, the only way we can block any of this pain, it's going to render him where he won't be able to speak and he won't be able to talk to any of you again. He'll just go out into eternity from here. And he and the family got together and he was just under such constant horrific pain, something I can't even imagine to enter into, that he just could not bear it. And he had been burying the cancer for a long while. And finally it was agreed by himself and his family to administer the medication. When they did, he, he calmed down. And the doctor said, well, he won't ever say anything else again. And all of a sudden, Brother Curtis Hudson, Pastor for many years, Forest Hills Baptist Church in Georgia. Pastor uh, was a evangelist for many years. He started to preach. They said, and it wasn't out said, He just started preaching Bible doctrine and started preaching. And he preached for almost 24 hours straight. He got done with that, looked around at his family, smiled, went on to glory. Now, those are good illustrations of God's forgiveness and how God can be merciful to somebody. But every now and then, someone will get up, and I'm not looking to find fault with all different preachers or anything of that, but I hear this type of thing, and they'll get up, and it's such a desire when you're trying to get across the goodness of God and the depths of His forgiveness and what He can do for a person. You sometimes get at a complete loss to put it into words, and the words are too weak of a vehicle to convey the truth you want to get across and try to bring it across, and you're searching for things to try to put it out clearly in front of folks, and you get overwhelmed with it. And somebody will get up and they'll say, well, you know, if Adolf Hitler had repented, he could have got saved. Joseph Stalin had repented he got saved something like that. And I had a cringe. 
You say, preacher, don't you think God has that kind of power? Here's the issue, and this is this is completely germane to the thing of forgiveness. They did it. They did it. John Newton did. I don't like my mind taking it into a fictional construct of someone that died hideously, died blasphemously, and somehow it almost sounded like we're laying guilt at God's feet that they never turned to the Lord. Maybe that doesn't affect you that way it does me. I don't like that sort of thing. And also what I don't like about it is people get this idea, they look at that and it's repugnant because they know what those people were like. They know how they died. They know, know how their life was and how it continued on. And then they're almost forcing the mind to say, well, if you're going to really be forgiving, you have to say this is okay. If you don't ever say that, that's what comes across. Nonsense. I, I find nonsense to be more and more distasteful the older I get. And so... Those type of illustrations, we don't need those. Then I'll give you an illustration of folly and forgiveness I've seen in action. Many years ago at the Ohio University of Lancaster Branch campus, there was a pervert by the name of Maplethorpe that came in and so-called had an art exhibit that raised quite a ruckus in this town. Anybody here remember when that went on in this town? Right. Now, a bunch of misguided Christians went down to speak against it. There was a forum for doing that. I went to the forum and these people went through and looked at his decadent perversion so that they know what they're talking about. I don't have to see what the pervert's doing. They're no pervert when I say pervert. And, and so I still remember being in the whatever the looks like auditorium type thing there at Ohio University in Lancaster. And I was sitting there and they Gave numbers when you went in. If your number was called, you had 30 seconds to say whatever you were allowed to say. Although then-President Ping of Ohio University made sure that he had the thing read to us that no homophobic sentiments would be tolerated. Other than that, freedom of speech. And so anyway, here's what I saw that really got to me was people, maybe Christian people, maybe people who didn't believe their Bible, but very misguided the way they went about forgiveness, walk over to this fellow, he was sitting there, look at him, and say, I forgive you. He wasn't asking. And they didn't have the right to. I don't know how many came along and said, I just want to look at you and tell you I forgive you. And I still remember his expression was like, you're an idiot. And as much as I hate to side with him, I agreed. What are you talking about? You forgive him. He was there strongly saying, I believe that these vile things put out there are completely worthy of being called art and things that are directly attacking Jesus Christ in, in the most profane ways you can imagine. Those things are acceptable and you need to accept whatever we're trash I'm putting out there. I forgive you. That's some very misguided teaching about forgiveness. Say another real life one. Turn my stomach. How many of you remember the Columbine shootings? If you're old enough to remember those. 
isn't it a very sad testimony that that has become obscure behind the list of many different mass shootings there have been, especially ones at school. It was not the very first one that, that made news of large size, but it was the first one that got the attention because of their methodical execution style of, of the thing. Well, as always, when the cameras were seeking people out, there are those people who are going to get in front of a camera whenever something's going on. And they're going to be making sure everybody knows that somehow they were so affected by it, whether they were or not. It's kind of repugnant. No, it's very repugnant. And there were not less than three that I saw of people. None of their children were, were shot. They were in no way related to either the families that were shot nor the ones who did the shooting. And they got on national television and they said, they, they announced that they were a believer or a Christian or the language they used to that. And they said, just want everyone to know that we have forgiven these. I don't think I could have found in my heart to condemn if one of the parents of the children stand by what interaction they may have taken them. They had no right to forgive. They had no capacity to forgive. But do you see what I'm saying to say? And although these, I intentionally have chosen illustrations that deal with some extreme emotion situations, but you can see that one of the things that happens with forgiveness is a misteaching of it puts people in the position of thinking that to be spiritual, we, we need to do something that God has not commanded us to do. Let me show you the right way with this. Forgiveness must be in reserve, but forgiveness can only be extended when it is truly sought. It's in reserve. It's in our heart. The, we've decided not to be the avenger. And by the way, that doesn't mean we think that what the wrong that was done is okay. That doesn't mean that we say it's fine. I always think it's a mistake, not sin, not a moral trespass, nothing like that. But I, I think it's a, just a, there's a better way of doing things. A child does something wrong and, and uh, they're corrected for it. And, uh, and maybe they're brought to somebody, you know, a parent maybe thinks they need to come to someone and, and apologize, or maybe they're asked to apologize. And again, this isn't something sinful, but, but we have a tendency to say, they'll say, I did such and such, and they own up to what they did wrong. And we have a tendency to say, that's okay. I get it. What we're trying to say is, I'm not holding that against you. It's not the best way of doing things. Because it's not okay. Well, I, I know I kicked you in the shin in the hallway and I shouldn't have done that. That's okay. Really? Wow. Um, <laughs> no. It's much more in keeping with reality and truth if we'd say something along the lines of, I, I'm glad you're willing to say that. Thank you. I forgive you of that. Hey, I'll tell you what, let's, let's both now, let's both forget about it, let's go on from here. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't say that it's okay. Catch this. The commands for us to forgive are not commands for us to endorse what's wrong. The commands for us to forgive are not commands for us 
to say that things which have been done wrongly to us were okay. It almost, that wrong teaching almost puts a burden on you that somehow if it bothers you that someone messed with you, that somehow you're not right because it bothers you because they messed with you. That's not scriptural. And I believe that people who can think reasonably, think intelligently, rebel against in their minds being forced into a corner that is not what is reality and truth and is not what's taught in Scripture. I hope I'm as clear as I see this to be tonight. When forgiveness is truly being sought, the one seeking forgiveness will be willing to frankly take ownership of their part in the trespass or transgression. You say, what's a sign someone's really seeking forgiveness? They will take ownership of what their part is as they see it. You may have a disagreement with someone what you see, and that may be something you can talk out and get. But when there's excuse, when there's ignoring, when it's just put aside, whatever, then you know what you're dealing with. Jesus put it very succinctly. Listen, please, to the exact wording of this. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, you know what the next two words are? Rebuke him. I thought it'd say forgive him. That comes on down later in the verse. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. What's that mean? It does not mean, hey, you idiot! That's not rebuke. <laughs> rebuke is dealing specifically with what the trespass is. Here is how you have hurt me. Here is where you violated something. Read the verse again in its entirety. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. Then he went on to say, if he repents seven times in a day. We will read that with a flippancy that is not in the Scripture idea. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Going back. But those seven times all match this. He's been rebuked. He's taken ownership. Okay, then you extend the forgiveness. God doesn't say, thy brother... Trespass against thee, forgive him. You've just been made a permanent hostage when that goes on. Because they can do whatever they want to you. And you have no recourse. That is not the way God designed it. God does not even extend in a practical application way. He does not even extend his forgiveness to us until we trust him. I'm not a Calvinist. Not at all. I'm very much against the doctrine of Calvinism. I'm going to tell you something. I don't believe that God just came and said, forgive you, forgive you, forgive you, forgive you, forgive you. You know what he is? He's plenteous in mercy, ready to forgive. He said, what about Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The man, Jesus Christ, was acting as mediator, pleading on our behalf.
That would be us holding something in reserve in the way of forgiveness and saying, God, help them, help them to see that that's going to destroy them. The question comes up, have you ever forgiven so-and-so? Well, so-and-so's never asked for forgiveness. So-and-so will not admit they have any error. So-and-so is very determined to stay on the same course action they always have. Would you be willing? That would be wonderful. It would be great rather than this, but there's been no reality of them responding to any rebuke. If thy brother trespass against thee, against thee, not against God, that's between him and God, not you and him, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. Let me bring this down. Consider Joseph in the Old Testament. If ever there was a fellow who had set in front of him circumstances or set around him circumstances that could have caused him to harbor bitterness, grudge, and every other kind of poison that could have destroyed him, it was Joseph. I don't believe on our Sunday night crowd I need to enumerate all the many trespasses which had come his way. But he had a reserve of forgiveness. Now here's the interesting thing, and I want you to watch this. His reserve of forgiveness did not blind him to the reality of the actions of those he dealt with. What do you mean by that, preacher? Well, in Genesis 45, 24, it's interesting. You've had the thing where he's shown himself to his brothers. They've wept on each other. Those guys are still rascals. They show that again, by the way. Joseph, does. he's not foolish. He doesn't say, oh, they're all great. He gets wagons from Egypt. He gets supplies from Egypt. He sends them back to get his father. Now this is, this is priceless. You know what the last thing he says to him as they head for Canaan land to get their father? It's in Genesis 45-24. He says, see that you fall not out by the way. Why would he say that to him? Because that's what they do. Do you know when he got sold into slavery, he was looking for them because his father sent him? And they were supposed to be where? Know them? Guess where they weren't? Because they weren't where they were supposed to be. That was what they did. So he gives them these, gives these, these wagons. He gives them all these supplies. He's sending them to get his father. And his last word to them, yeah, I believe he probably looks right now and says, see that you've fallen out now, by the way. By the way, that's not kid brother Joseph talking to him anymore. That's the man who can unleash the expeditionary military force of Egypt to come get them if they do. That's not just a, hey guys, make sure you make it to dad. That's a command of a royal power. See that you fall not out, by the way. He said, but he was, he, he was so gracious to him later. That's because he had a reserve. I'm going to show you this. It's beautiful how this all ties together. He had a reserve. 
But in that reserve and having that reserve, he and him, and I'll show you this categorically, him deciding not to act like he was God, not to be the avenger, in that, he still kept his eyes open to reality. See, that's where the teaching on forgiveness messes people up so bad because it asks you to suspend your reasoning capacity instead of submitting our heart and mind to the Lord and letting the fullness of Christ's forgiveness flow through us. And by the way, let me just add this. I go to the last point. You don't have to like somebody to forgive them. You say, well, forgive and forget. My forgetter doesn't work as well. I can choose not to hold against him. I can make sure I don't dwell on it. I have to like somebody to forgive them. I can decide not to carry that grudge. I can honestly say, okay, that's forgiven. Hey, there's no more, no more strife between us as far as my side goes. But we are not doing a road trip together. That, right back to that first verse, as much as life in you, if it be possible, that's what that's all about. Now, what's this thing with, with Joseph? Look in Genesis 50. He had that reserve of forgiveness, but he paid attention. He, he, was, he, he, he looked at what was real. Genesis chapter 50. By the way, what had happened right here? Their father died. And his brothers got together and said, uh-oh, dad's dead. Joseph's going to get revenge on us now. You know, they never got over that. Everything that would happen, they'd run it back to that, wouldn't they? They were in constant prison from their own deeds. And they did. They're like, dad's dead. No, no. You know what that means. Joseph, just wait until his dad's dead. Oh my goodness, we're in trouble now. They get together. We read about it earlier in, in here, Genesis 49 50. They get together and they come up with a plan. Here's what we're going to tell him. We're all going to tell him that before dad died, he told the rest of us, you forgive your brothers. God is my witness. That's exactly what it says. They said, we're going, okay, everybody got the story? Everybody, everybody got on the same page? All right. We're going to go tell him, Dad's last wish, would you be good to us? Joseph saw right through it. Let's begin verse 15. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us. And will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. They said, now he's going to get revenge. That's what he's been thinking of this whole time. It's vengeance. That's not what he had been thinking of. God had been with him. Because he was not thinking of that all the time. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil, and now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy, the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. 
I don't believe he wept because, oh, they're getting right. Oh, Dad said this. I believe he probably was weeping the fact that he had not changed and that they just, they didn't get it. (laughs) Then verse 18, And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. Now, look at this. This is such sound doctrine all the way through. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? He had gotten that issue of who vengeance belonged to settled at some point. Am I in the place of God? Have mercy. Am I in the place of God? Why, why could he do for them what he did? Because he says, I'm not in the place of God. If, God. if God wants them to be dealt with, he will deal with them. Let me tell you something. Listen to me. It's very annoying if you think people sometimes are getting away with something. Nobody gets away with anything. You don't. I don't. Nobody gets away with anything. For there is a God who is the judge of this world. Verse 20, but as for you, and look how real and steady he is with this, ye thought evil against me. He never got delusional about their, oh, you, oh, they didn't mean to. Yes, they did. Ye thought evil against me, but God, <laughs> but God, meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now, therefore, fear ye not. I will nourish you and your little ones. Here comes that deep reserve. He comforted them and spake kindly unto them. But wait a minute. And Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's house. And Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mashur, the son of Manasseh, were brought up upon Joseph's knees. By yielding vengeance to its rightful owner, he freed himself from the bondage of bitterness and he could be a blessing to the next generation and the next generation. Let me pray with you tonight. Father, Give thy grace to your people. As they desire to be right in this manner. Forgiveness, even as you've been right to us. Pray you'll do a deep work in the hearts of your people. Please. Let's stand. We have a song invitation. Let it come tonight, Lord Lord.